Hi there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Asking for a Friend, a podcast that covers all those topics relating to sex, intimacy, and relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. Just a warning, this podcast may contain conversations of a sexual nature, and so if there are little ones around, it's best for you to turn off and listen later. This episode is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. Very sneaky little discount. Stay tuned to the end of the episode. Casey Blake is a registered counselor with a special interest in sexuality, gender, parenting, relationships, and trauma. Much of her career is focused on the emotional and psychological implications for people in a society where open and honest conversations about sex are frowned upon. She has a passion for sex education outside of the classroom and actually runs workshops for parents and caregivers that help them feel more competent and more confident to have age-appropriate conversations with their children. The workshops she runs focus on speaking about bodies, touch boundaries, consent, privacy, relationships, and sexuality. And for me, the conversation that we got to have was so interesting and I learned so much and I really hope that you do too. I'm so happy to be speaking to you, Casey. You've got so much knowledge in this topic. And uh, when I was planning on on kind of the, the episodes for season two and the topics, this is a topic that so many people contact me about. And if I'm able to assist, I do. Otherwise, I'm like, can you please go and speak to Casey? Casey's the one you have need to have a discussion to. I mean, what was it that kind of pushed you towards this niche area of sexual health and sexuality? There wasn't like a direct, oh, this is where I want to go in terms of sexual health. I always wanted to work in sexuality. Um, Growing up, I found it easy to speak about sex with my friends. Um, People came to me with all kinds of questions and I'd be like, I don't know, let's go to the pharmacy. And when we're getting your morning after pill, find out the answers to your questions. So sexuality has always been easy for me to talk about. So I knew I wanted to work there. Um, I had massive dreams about revamping the sex ed syllabus slash actually creating one. Um, Those dreams died when I realized how much red tape was in the way and how many people don't want children to actually have protective information. Um, So I thought, well, if I can't talk to the children and provide them information, and by children, I literally mean anyone from basic information from Russia school all the way up to university students because there's issues there too um I was like well let me go to the the barriers the parents and teach them how to teach their children because most parents want their children to know enough but they don't know what that means because they're like us they didn't get any information so any kind of information feels like it's too much and inappropriate um And too little information leads us to finding our own information, which is often incorrect and harmful. So that's what led me into the niche of speaking to parents about speaking to their own children. So it really came out of a place of of necessity. And yeah, I very much share that dream that you you have. Let's say you have, because, you know, you know, there's still many, many, many years ahead that you could be doing that, but it's a yeah, I mean, it's an understatement to say that there are some there's some red tape. Um, and I mean, even what we've seen with the reactions to the launch of the Comprehensive Sexual Education Program, it's just, it, you're absolutely right. So go to the source and the source is the, the parents because the parents are the ones who, who actually should be educating their kids, but they generally pass it off and try and get the other to do it. And the other being you know, they leave it up to the other, should I say. So the other is the schools or friends or an auntie or pornography, God forbid, is the worst form of sex education. I mean, statistics show that at least, I don't know if there's been studies in South Africa, but in the general world, children are exposed to porn from nine. Um, Intentionally exposed. The accidental exposure is much younger. I was going to say, I'm sure it's younger. 
scary, actually. I mean, I, I many years ago, she's she my my a very dear little family member of mine is, um, and she's kind of seven now, you know. So many 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 years ago, I watched her at the age of two open an iPad, you know, and flick through things. And I and this was my iPad, so I was just thinking to myself, you know. She's two and she can open this iPad. She knows exactly what she's doing. She knew the code. She, it was, the memory was insane. But just imagine like you know, with the work that we do, we've always got weird and wonderful things opened on our browsers. I mean, it's my, my, my other half doesn't even react anymore when he sees some strange and random thing. But, you know, imagine this little one had opened up a browser accidentally, you know, because this is what I do for a living. I'm always exploring these different things, but, been looking at some type of weird and wonderful pornography and and she's two so as you say accidentally a lot earlier so teaching parents how to teach their kids that seems extremely logical but I have no doubt that there are major barriers emotional physical barriers to doing that hmm huge I mean the biggest the uh, the biggest thing is that Parents don't want to be that parent in the community that is not that, that your children can't go play at your house because things are inappropriate there. The irony is, if your children have words like penis and vulva, they're the ones who are like they're the safer children. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the safer house because there's language that means there's a relationship with language and a relationship with their bodies, and hopefully a relationship with their caring adults where they can say you know, this is what happened. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about it. And they can converse with their parents and then the parents can go forward with whatever needs to happen if there's something of concern. Um, I know that there's research that has found that using correct anatomical terms for children results in a much healthier development sexually as, as once you're an adult. So using the correct terminology in your language in English, penis and vulva and vagina inside, vulva outside, we need to always emphasize that. Um, you know, that actually, as, as strange as it might seem for a parent, because they were not taught those words. I, my parents didn't use those words with me. So, and I mean, my parents are medical professionals. So, you know, it's, it's interesting how we, we rather use the fluffy words, the, the less shame sounding words rather than the anatomical part. It's crazy. I mean, clitoris is an anatomical part and children who have clitorises, just like children with penises are often holding them because it's nice. Mm. Um, so there's this whole big Thing. I think what happens is parents don't want to talk about sex with their children and by avoiding sex they, they any kind of topic that is you know seven degrees related to sex then gets dismissed as too close to sex so we don't talk about body parts we don't talk about relationships we don't talk about boundaries we don't talk about pleasure because that's too close to sex even though all of these things have got nothing to do with sex especially when you're a child um, I think that's a really important point you've just made they have nothing to do with sex when you're a child, but right. It's the adults, right. That are placing that. So we, it's what we call projecting. They're projecting and putting their own feelings about the situation into the child. So would you say that that's just one of the obstacles that kind of gets in the way to parents talking to their kids about sex? Absolutely. I mean, there's anecdotal evidence that linking to your study about relationships with their body healthier and their relationships with sexuality being healthier. It's anecdotal evidence that shows that children who know what their body parts are and have language and can speak to them are less likely to be preyed upon because they are not, the predators are not protected by the taboo of silence. That's powerful. Wow. Hmm. That's really, really powerful. So actually, the more your kids know appropriately. Yeah the safer they will be. Yep. It doesn't stop them. There's no guarantee that nothing will happen to them. It is very close to guarantee that nothing will happen more than once. Oh gosh. I'm sure that's a, that's a, that's a phrase or that sentence is going to shake some parents to the core, but I guess these are the realities, unfortunately, of the world that we live in and we need to better prepare our children. And one of the ways to do that is to talk to them about sex what about one's own upbringing around sex? How does that impact our ability to then discuss sex with our kids? I'm going to use an, an example from one of my previous workshops um, because this was such a powerful one for me. So I had a 
attend in 2017 who spoke about how for her growing up there was it wasn't a very affectionate family the only time physical affection ever happened in her life was in sex so she didn't hug her kids because it felt too sexual for her right so there was no physical affection in her home that she grew up in and the home that she created because it was just the only physical affection in her life was sex after the workshop so we t- talk about touch being a non-sexual pleasure p- possibility she now has like massage days with her family where they sit in a circle and give each other massages um obviously this is a non-sexual thing but like that's the impact of how you talk about it at home it has such an impact on your life and this is not unique this is just a very good example from one of the parents who've attend who has attended in the past um and i bet that that's just one of many 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 examples of negative messages around sex mm. um you know really difficult experiences around sex but i often also speak about you know no messages around sex that that is kind of as detrimental as negative messages because where do we go what do we do with that so when we grow up we again seek out our sexual education from really unhelpful sources from friends from pornography from hollywood movies i've had clients say to me many times you know i i i thought sex was what happened in the notebook and i'm like i wish sex was what happened in the notebook that would be brilliant if that's what it looked like all the time you know casey you and i wouldn't have to work so hard to help people overcome sexual challenges but there couldn't be further from the truth and there's so much shame and stigma associated to sex when we grow up and we just we just carry that through to adulthood right and then transfer it onto our kids so it just keeps going back and forth and back and forth or should i say forward and then back a generation and forward and back a generation and so on i mean it's it's terrifying the amount of clients that we have to navigate well if relationships don't work like in the movies why would sex like we're we're we can understand that unicorns may not exist in real life but we can watch them on movies and we can fully believe it but we know that's not the real life when it comes to sexy excuse me maybe because we don't talk about the fact that that's not what real sex looks like somehow we can differentiate unicorns from reality but not movie sex from reality why do you think that is because we speak about how unicorns aren't real. That's common discourse. Hmm. And yet, we don't speak about sex because it's awkward. Even talking to friends is awkward and often embellished, so there's very little it's hard to know what the truth is. And for parents, as you as you said earlier, if you're that parent and you you and I, you know, should we have families one day will be those parents. <laughs> Um, should you be that parent who speaks openly about sex? It's almost like you get like a, you know, there's a target on your house for that house that you you shouldn't go to, a warning sign, a warning label that comes with you and your child that, you know, they speak about sex openly and that's bad. The irony is that in communities where there are known predators, people warn the children against the predators but never say why. They say don't go, like when you go to that house, be careful, but they never say why. That's a very interesting point. Don't talk to strangers. Mm-hmm. Don't go off with anybody. But there's no – let's talk a little bit about that, actually, if we can, just to touch on it. Because I understand that that's – you know, you don't want to – there's a fine line. You don't want children to be so fearful. And also, there is a very fine line there and not – causing immense fear around sex because we see that as adulthood mm-hmm. with sexual aversions and you know very low levels of sexual interest and sexual arousal how do we how do we balance that that's that's tough the 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 safety with the reality of it so my answer is an adapt- adaptation from a sex worker in the US his name is King Noir he's a a performer and an educator and a bunch of other things Um and he was on a podcast a while ago with his partner and their 1-year-old baby at the time and being a black man in America having a black young child boy child in America they were talking about how do you stay safe without creating fear so king noah said that they're going to teach majesty 
about the systems in place in the world. So how to navigate them safely without creating fear that he can never step out in the world. So that speaking as a black man in America, I can't speak from that perspective, but it makes me think about, we can give children information on how to exit strategies, how to like exit strategies for when you're uncomfortable so that you don't have to sit in uncomfortable spaces. We can teach children that people's feelings of okayness is never more important than yours. You mustn't bully people, but if your leaving is going to make someone sad, but your staying is going to make you very unhappy or put you at risk, their sadness is less important than your safety. I think so many people need to hear that, actually. So, so as many adults. people. <laughs> Never yeah. mind as children. Yeah, as adults. Actually, that's, I'm, just, I'm just thinking, like, I know a lot of people who could do really well with hearing that message. It's 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 this very fine balance, but you've put it really beautifully. And for me, the, the, the absolute foundation of it is education. Mm-hmm. So so delving into that a little bit, you know, tell me, you told me kind of what it was that led you into developing talks for parents. So tell us a little bit about these workshops you've developed, the tools for having the talks, because that is education at its best, in its best form, I think. Thank you. So I decided when I came across the, like when I started developing this, I decided that what's missing is language. So we cannot, just like we spoke about earlier, we avoid everything that's seven degrees related to sex, just in case, which means we actually have no language for our body parts, often as communities, as families. Um, So I I split the workshops up in a so that we lay foundations and we build on them, kind of like we're building a Lego house. So the first workshop is is basic language. How do we talk about the body? How do we talk about puberty? What I think is quite nice about my workshops is they're age group specific. So if you are a parent of a nursery schooler, this is what you need. This is according to the United Nations research, according to the World Health Organization, this is what your child can and should know by this age, right? So I've taken that information and I've said, how do we talk about this? How do you start? Because, you know, by the age of four, children can and should know what all their body parts are and the functions related to them. And we're not talking sexual function. We're talking urination. We're talking um, possibility of menstruation. We're talking about erections. We're talking about um, feces, poo, all those things. So what are your body parts? What do they do? And That allows children to talk about it if it's sore because urinary tract infections are common. Um, Constipation is common, often linked to urinary tract infections when it finally is resolved. So like being able to talk about this with your young child who's only two, three, four learning language, that is my favorite age group of parents because there's very little undoing to do. There's very little unlearning to do. They don't have to say, well, you know, I've been saying this for all this time and now we're gonna try new language, they can just start with the language. So as your child is learning their body parts, learning how to speak about it, you're providing them with information and taking away the shame. Are you also teaching consent around those body parts at that age? So consent is the entire day too. So consent at at, at nursery school age is when, or like toddlerish, when you wanna hand your baby over to somebody and your baby clearly doesn't wanna go, that's consent. Forcing your baby to go is violating consent. Verbalizing for your nonverbal child, oh, it seems like you don't want to go there. That's okay. I'm going to put you down here. That's navigating consent. You're teaching everyone who's interacting with your child in the moment that their sense of safety comes first. And you're helping your child know that. Um, a little bit older, family gatherings, I always say, are the key site for consent violation Um, because, and this is, it's never intended. We don't intend to teach our children that consent is not a thing. But so often we hear, but don't you want to go give granny a kiss? And if you don't like, and the child is like, no. And what do we say? But it's going to hurt her feelings if you don't. You don't want her to be sad, do you? That right there, consent violation. What you're saying is you don't have control over your body I say you do unless I take it away from you. And it's conditional. Yeah. 
and consent should never be conditional because then it's not consent, then it's coercion. Very good point, right? It's coercion. It's so okay. So you've got the zero to four group, right? Is that mm-hmm. is that kind of the first workshop that you're doing? So zero to four freaks people out. So I call it three to six. Yeah. But I've had parents of two-year-olds and one-year-olds attend. Yeah, look, I believe that parents of one-year-olds and two-year-olds in preparation for when their children start to become curious and discover the world, because this is a normal and natural part of of human development, they need to be prepared. So that's great to hear. Um, I want to touch on something that's come up in a lot of workshops I've given. So you know, in, in, the career, in the career that I've had, I've been fortunate to do a lot of academic talks, but a lot of general public talks. And I've done many talks with women where, you know, on many different occasions, there's been a woman in the audience who said, you know, let's give them a random example. I walked into the TV room the other day and my two and a half year old son was touching himself. He had his hand in his nappy and he was touching himself. And I freaked out or I turned around and left the room because I couldn't handle it or I I just didn't know what to do and I've never mentioned it again. What should a parent do in that instance? And it happens with girls as well as boys, you know, those with vulvas as well as penises. Like I said earlier, the clitoris and the penis both feel nice, um, especially if it's yours and it's your hand and you want it to. So that's also part of, second workshop is now we know so workshop one how do we talk about the body and its functions workshop two how do we navigate our body with other people around us in terms of please don't touch my hair to masturbating in the tv room so we navigate public versus private how does the family as a whole navigate privacy in terms of nudity in terms of changing in terms of toilet activities there is usually some form of privacy conversation as a family. Um, so if, if you are a family that is comfortable being nude at home, even though it's still home, as soon as somebody enters the home, it becomes a public, a public space and we put clothes on. Um, so that conversation of how do we navigate public and private, remember, outside of the sexual content first, and then bringing in the masturbation or the self-pleasure, that's something that isn't for private viewing. And even us as your family, we con- this is something that's just for you. It's beautiful, um, especially now it's just for you. So you can do it in your own space. If there is shared bedrooms, navigating private space. So you get to have the space for yourself now and close the door and your sibling who shares the room with you later knows and then they can do the same thing when they need private space. Um, Most parents who come to me with this question are terrified of shaming their children. They don't want to create a sex negative situation whether they have reacted negatively or not. They normally come and say okay so what did I do wrong and how do I fix it or how do I navigate it in the future because parents don't want their children to be scared of their own genitals. They don't want them to think they're bad. They just don't want them to think they're amazing right now. And and that's something we can navigate. We have to be able to navigate appropriateness, privacy, space, without creating a sense of shame. And in a a way that is appropriate and age-appropriate, I mean. Okay. So we've got that kind of first workshop. We've got that second workshop. Is there any more after that? I mean, how far do you go with this for parents? How much help do you offer them? We do, so it's a three-workshop series because we have to be able to now put everything together. So once we've got language and once we understand consent and boundaries, we can then talk about sex and relationships. Because if we talk about sex outside of body language and outside of consent, the things that parents fear are still very unlikely to happen, but they're reinforcing that message that anything with bodies is sex and anything with relationships is sex. Forgetting that we have friendships, they're relationships. We have relationships with our families. They are not supposed to be sexual relationships. So we need to be able to talk about these things outside of sex and then bring in sex appropriately. So how how would a parent with, let's say, children under eight, let's go with that, how would they navigate boundaries versus permission? 
So a two-year-old touching himself or herself is actually very normal. It's a normal part of human development and of a child's sexual development. And again, you've, you've emphasized this, and I want to emphasize it again, that a child is touching themselves because it feels nice and it's soothing. It has absolutely nothing to do with sex and pleasure of the sexual type. But the parent is associating that to sexual pleasure because that's an adult. It looks like an adult act of sexual pleasure. So how do you tell parents that they, there are boundaries between like private and public, you know, like you wouldn't want, of course, you wouldn't want your two-year-old at a birthday party to go by himself and sit in a corner and touch himself or have his hands down his pants, because while that's nice and soothing for him and it's comforting for him, it's going to be interpreted in a very different way by everyone else at that birthday party. But at the same time, without shaming him, giving him permission to say, hey, it's, it's quite normal that you're doing that. I know it feels nice. How do we navigate those, those two kind of parts of this this very tricky approach that we need to take. It is tricky. So I don't talk about permission as much as I talk about respecting of boundaries. So you are allowed to touch yourself. It's your body. But where needs to be appropriate, when needs to be appropriate, who's around needs to be appropriate. I also talk about something that often gets overlooked is Boundaries are about, and I mentioned it earlier, head to toe. It's not just about don't let people touch you in your bathing suit areas because predators very seldom start there. They will start by sitting too close in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. They will start by touching your arm. And if no one has ever said to you, you know, tell me if anyone touches you anywhere that makes you feel uncomfortable, you won't know that you can say this person sat really close to me and I didn't like it. Once again, coming back to if something does happen, if your child has language and feels safe talking to you, it is unlikely to happen again. Even in that instance, the child will be able to say, that's, I don't like, can you not sit so close to me? Can you sit over there? Please don't touch my leg. Because it's, when we focus, and we do this such, such good intent, when we focus on don't let anyone touch your genitals or your breasts, we leave out the fact that we've got an entire body that people can be inappropriate with. So that's more also included in the boundaries. What around permission is like, this is not natural and normal, but this is for you right now, right? And it's a strange conversation about sex is for when you're older because that never works. <laughs> but explaining why, you know, this is for, I mean, we're, we're now having the conversation that we I have with my parents who come to the 11 to 14 year old workshops more in depth is well what is the sex for why why would there be sex in a relationship let's think about what sex is for in a relationship can you have a good romantic intimate relationship without sex absolutely how do you decide so we talk about like the pressure to have sex what it means and that you can never prove love you can never prove care you can never prove any of those things and you can definitely not prove it with sex so if you walk into the TV room and your child has, is engaging with themselves in a pleasurable, touching way with their genitals, don't freak out. Take a deep breath um, and you can say, oh, looks like you're touching yourself again. It must be quite nice. Do you mind doing that in private? Don't freak out. You can say, remember when we spoke about public versus private spaces? When you're touching yourself like that, you are so welcome to go do it in the bathroom when you're on your own. It does make me a bit uncomfortable to watch you do that. So it would be best if everyone is feeling comfortable by you doing it out of public viewing and we can, the rest of us can enjoy TV. And when you're done, you can come back and sit with us. Um, it's very wordy. It's very clunky. It will always be because we're the adults. We're the ones who have to hold the awkward. Yes, I like that. We are the ones that hold the awkward. And I mean, I mentioned it earlier that we'll be those parents, but we'll also be those parents that have anxiety in speaking to our children one day, our families about sex, because that's the messages we got around sex, mostly growing up. Now, as I was listening to that, I was just imagining some of my listeners cringing and thinking, how on earth am I going to have that sort of, how can I say that in the moment? Like, how am I going to get over the intense discomfort and like icky feeling that I have in saying to my two and a half year old, 
don't worry, my sweetheart, it's okay what you're doing. Like what you're doing is really normal, but it's better if you do it on your own in your bedroom, like when no one else is there, because I want you to be comfortable, but I also want to be comfortable. I mean, I imagine that some parents listening to that are really going to be cringing and thinking to themselves, that's never going to happen. I mean, is there anything that you, you advise parents to do if that sort of feeling comes up? Because generally as human beings, we avoid the things that make us feel anxious. So parents may avoid this topic. They may avoid saying things like that to their child. So what could parents do if they feel that way? Take a moment to breathe. I always say, be curious, not accusatory. Right. So if you don't know how to have that, it's natural conversation. You can say, hey, what are you doing? Not what are you doing, but what are you doing? Oh, how come you do it? What did, you know, just like you would say, what are you doing if they're playing with toys and why are they doing it with those toys? You know, how, why did you choose that? Same kind of conversation. And then you can say, well, do you want to go do that in private? And then later come back always come back. I think there's three things I always say to parents. Have the conversation a few days later because you never know what they got from it. And it's sometimes very amusing once you're over your own awkward, how they misinterpret us. So have conversations where they tell you the story back. Parents often think that they need to do the talking. And the thing is, especially once they're about four or five and have interacted with other children, they've got information. If you act dumb, they will be so excited to share it with you if they are not scared of punishment for having the information. That's a very And that's part, yeah, that's part of workshop one is this language is not punishable. This is just anatomical language. And how do you change that relationship if it's already in place? If your children have gotten the impression that speaking to you about this will get them into trouble. I mean, that's going to do the opposite. It's going to make your kids not come anywhere near you when it comes to this topic. Kids don't want to get right. in trouble. Kids don't want to upset their parents as much as I know a lot of parents will be thinking that's not true. Kids don't want to upset their parents. So anything that might be deemed as upsetting will be avoided. Anything that yeah. will be deemed as punishable will be avoided. And you made such a valid point there, which was the curiosity. Be curious and allow your child the space to share with you what they know. And I've seen this, you know, where parents give too much information, which can also be harmful at a certain age, versus where parents say, do you know what sex is? And the little one is able to say, yes, that's when mommy and daddies hug. And you can actually, in that moment, you can change the messages around sex to say, well, yes, that's true. Mommy and daddy do hug. But also mommies and mommies hug, daddies and daddies hug. And it's not just hugging. This is what's actually happening, assuming it's age appropriate when they're hugging. We hug our parents. We hug our children. That is very dangerous language to use in the avoidance of having sex talks. Because hmm. um, go give granny a hug. Are they supposed to have sex with their gran? You see how they put all these little things together. I talk about it like pixelation. Um, so like when I was 10, 12, I went to the bank and there was this huge poster at the back of the bank. And as you walked in, it was this beautiful picnic kind of picture, typical bank, you know, pictures. But as you walked closer, the definition disappeared and it was all these like pixels so far apart. And I always talk about information being a pixelated picture. Children will walk away from it until it makes sense. And they're going to put a special hug between mommy and daddy as sex while but I hug. Do I have sex? You absolutely just smashed that for me because even in me just describing that example, I've just realized how I'm playing into that myself. And I'm so glad you, you called that out because I was thinking like, well, yes, you know, and, and we can be inclusive with our language, but I'm not thinking about the action word there, hugging, and what that actually means. You're right. I hug my parents. I hug my friends. I, I'm, I'm not having sex with them. So hugging is not sex. It's such, such, such a crucial distinction you just made. And I've just been schooled in, a, the, in the best way possible, because even though you and I do this for a living, 
doesn't mean we get this right 100% of the time. We always try to use inclusive language. We always try to make sure we're putting out, you know, really helpful messages. But we also are human and we were also raised with the type of form, but we were also raised with the type of blueprint to sex that everyone else has been raised with. Just because we are now working in the field of sexual health doesn't mean that that blueprint just disappeared. So I'm so glad that that interaction has actually just happened because I know that while I was talking about it, there would have been parents listening going, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then you caught it. And I was like, that is such such an important thing that I've just learned. And I hope other people listening will have learned too. So interesting, Casey. I mean, I've been running these workshops. This is my seventh or eighth year, eighth year now. And I literally edit them every single workshop because in the space it's been since the last time I ran the workshop, I have caught myself and had to be schooled and unlearn something. And then I change it in the workbook. Like the workbooks are never identical to the previous ones. And they're definitely, if you came to the 2014, 2016 or 17 workshops, this is a different book um, because I've learned so much over the process and I've caught myself going I don't know if that's a helpful message I've just sent out it was the best I had until now you don't know what you know until you know it sort of thing yep and we always do our best until we know better and then we do better Maya Angelou absolutely so what then if you're a parent listening to this and you're thinking I I really I understand they've given me tips and practical advice about how to approach the subject and be curious, but I just still can't. I mean, is it worth getting someone else to speak to our kids or relying on somebody else? And I wonder, I think they're a little bit different, but is, is it worth it to find someone else to speak to your kids or just hoping someone else will do the job? Yes and no. Yes, it is helpful for someone else to have the conversation. If you can follow up with the child and say, what did you learn? That's different. I didn't know that. Hold on. I know something different. Let's talk about it. Let's safe Google it together. Um, let's find out what, you know, what else is there to know about this topic. I don't think it's helpful if they can't talk to you because the person you have outsourced to will not be there tomorrow when the child now has a question. Will not be there in three weeks time when something happens in their world that reminds them of the first conversation and now they need clarity. That other person isn't there when they need to tell someone something has made them uncomfortable. So that school-based sex ed, amazing. It has so much potential because potentially if our teachers are trained adequately and have also done this unlearning, because they are also humans who have grown up in a very sex negative, let's shame the crap out of people, let's fear monger so nobody knows how to actually navigate sex. They just know that they should say no, um, all those things. That's amazing. It reaches every single child who goes to school, theoretically. That's amazing. But what happens with the conversations? They need to be able to have conversations because that's how we process. That's how we understand and make sense and consolidate information and unlearn and relearn. So there is nothing wrong with other people teaching your children sex ed. But can they come to you if they need you? if you're not openly letting them know that this is a safe topic. That's the permission I was kind of touching on earlier, right? Thank you. I mean, this is the, this is the crux of the work that we do is to give people permission because we've never been given it. And you can actually start very, very early on with saying it's okay if you want to ask me these questions, but you again, make a very valid point. If you're going to trust somebody else to do, to have this conversation for you, and that person isn't always there when the child has a question about their body or about um, an experience, a function of their body, an experience that they've had. Do they know that they can still come and speak to you? Do they know that despite your own anxiety and shame that you hold on to, you'll still be there for them? And I think that's the real challenge because kids will find alternative ways of managing the questions that they have around this topic and the feelings that they have around it. So you'll see them acting in a certain way, or you'll get them um, speaking to not so helpful people about it. 
And I think that there's that real danger there and where we get kind of tripped up again and again and again as the generations go, because we're not changing that narrative. We're not giving kids permission from the, well, the parents are not giving the kids permission and saying, I'm here, I'm your parent, and I will speak to you about these things, even if they make me uncomfortable. Absolutely. That's the second thing I always tell parents um, is that own your discomfort. Own it. You're a human. No one's expecting you to be anything other than that. So say this is a really uncomfortable topic, but I want to talk to you about it. Um, It's uncomfortable because no one ever spoke to me, so I don't know how this is supposed to go. But there's more than just saying you can come to me with anything. Children don't believe that. You need to bring the topics up so that they can see that you can handle this conversation. They're go- they, as you said earlier, children avoid getting into trouble. It is a survival instinct. So if you don't, as the parent and the caregiver, if you don't raise the topic repeatedly and own your awkward and laugh at the stumble and make it like make it light where possible, they've noticed that you keep saying you can talk to me about anything but you as the parent don't talk to them about anything. Hmm, Double standards right there. They're getting a very confusing message. Yeah. And they trust what they've experienced. And they're going off that each and every time they want to talk about something or they want to open up to someone about something. So that's their template, right? That's their blueprint. And and it's not just with sex, it's with everything. If they know that you don't like them watching a particular TV program, they won't stop them from getting access to it. They just won't tell you about it. Yes, your children are actually up to a lot more than you realize. And it's about acknowledging that and working with that rather than trying to shut that down. Look, I mean, it makes me think about parenting styles and... uh, We we don't have the space and time to get into that. And this, this is not this episode, but... Without a doubt, I think from everything you've shared with us so far, the way as a parent, as a way that you approach sex as a parent has the biggest effect and impact on your child's sexual development. So you actually have a choice as a parent how you're going to approach this topic. And if you do nothing, which is to continue the same pattern of behavior that blueprint just keeps on growing and growing that you experienced your child is probably going to experience the same I don't know sorts of things you may have experienced their development may be very similar because they're growing up with the same sort of messages but I I guess if you just change one thing if you just say you know you know your, your kids have had some sex education at school if you just say to them what did you learn tell me about it let's talk, let's open up this conversation. You're already doing one small thing that changes that narrative. It's such a big ripple effect, right? Just saying, teach me, I never had sex ed at school. What did you learn? Because it's often the truth. So it's not even a lie. But the third thing I always say is children have information. So the best answer when you're stuck, when they, on the odd occasion, they bring you a question, the best answer is, what do you think? gives you a moment to breathe and relax and figure out what they're looking for. And it gives you access to a little bit of their world because without these kinds of conversations, you have no access to what they know. None. This will never give you all the access, but it will give you some, it'll give you a window into their world. So, so speaking about that sex education at school, what do you think about the programs at schools? I have a two-point part answer. The first part is if the teachers who are teaching this are adequately trained and adequately aware and they de-heterosexualize it, in other words, make it a message for everybody, not just the hetero kids in the room, then it's a fantastic starting point. Like I said earlier, it is never everything that the kids will ever need to know. It is just a starting point. My master's research was on first-year students' um, opinion of how well-prepared they were based on sex ed. And there were some very scary things that came out. Mostly, 
they didn't feel prepared at all. Um, one of my participants spoke about how their partner knew more about her anatomy than her than she did. So she learned about herself through her, her heterosexual male partner. I had queer people in the room who said, well, I can't get SDIs because they only spoke about penis and vagina as sex. That's it. Um, many of the schools never did condom demonstrations because that was too sexy. So they spoke about condoms, but no idea of how to use them. They were also given myths about condoms being like non-effective. Nobody except for the queer folk knew about lube and that's because of their own self-learning. And when I asked them what they learned about consent, the most common answer was, yeah, we learned about rape. Wow. That is scary. So don't, I, I mean, I don't have articulate feelings about the sex ed system, but that's, that's my answer. But you, I'm picking up from what you've said that there is a part of you that thinks that teachers can change. The teachers can change the way that the child experiences that sexual education. So parents and teachers, actually, you need to listen to this podcast episode, obviously. You need to speak to Casey. But if anything, you just need to change one small thing to create that ripple effect, to, to start a new blueprint. And, I mean, I cannot begin to imagine how challenging it is for teachers year after year to have to deal with students and teaching sex ed. Cause especially if you're teaching a group of adolescents, you know, you can imagine the things that are being, that are being thrown your way um, verbally, emotionally and things like that. I hope not physically, but already by the kids are at an adolescent age, as you say, you know, a lot has been imprinted. A lot has been absorbed. And so Usually we only get sex ed around grade seven, grade six, grade seven and onwards. And that's already a little bit too late. What my participants did say is the best sex ed most of them received was in grade seven by that one nurse who came for one day. So the nurse wasn't embarrassed and just gave factual information. That's all it was. The nurse came on one day for probably one class like not even an hour, did some basic anatomy, some basic uh, safer sex stuff, and that was it. Having worked in many different parts of the world, what I've seen is it doesn't actually matter, you know, your the country's economic standing or how forward and liberal we think the country is. There are still always going to be these issues, and they just get passed on generation to generation. So as we kind of start to wrap up, what is one message you really think parents need to know? The one thing you'd wanted them to take away from this conversation we've had today? If your child isn't talking to you about what they know about sex information, their curiosities, they're going to talk to somebody else. That's pretty powerful. That is pretty powerful. And I hope, I do hope that that hits home for a lot of parents. So, you know, I think that at the end of the episodes, I want to know what's the most surprising thing for you in the work that you've been doing, that you've learned as you've done this work. Amazing shifts in the parents who attend the workshops. Because on day one, we, most people come because they are struggling with one of the, one of the topics, if not body stuff. So on day one, there's this awkwardness, there's this discomfort. The feedback from day two already is amazing on the conversations parents have. But in my Facebook group that I've got, I've got parents who are, are advocating for call a spade a spade. But in workshop one, they couldn't even say penis. Um, and it's just this beautiful comfort with their own bodies and their own boundaries and a reevaluation that happens that just being, giving yourself permission to use these words with your children changes the way you relate with your children. And it's so subtle, you don't even notice it. 
I get a big grin. And it's very similar to this, the case I shared earlier with a mom who never hugged her kids and they now do massage circles. Like for me, that's huge because we were able to desexualize bodies for her as the mom. We were able to desexualize pleasurable touch for her as the mom. And therefore, the entire family system has shifted. I'm really grateful you shared that that example, actually, because I, I do often speak to my clients about the difference between soothing pleasure touch and sexual pleasure touch. And you've done that exact thing with this client of yours um, and this in this workshop to help her completely change the way that she understands and experiences touch, which then ultimately is going to change the way her kids experience it. So how do parents reach you? Because they need to know more. They need to feel more confident. And I truly do believe that, you know, the feedback you're getting in day two sounds exactly exactly accurate on how I imagine people would feel because the more that we face something that we avoid something that causes us distress the less distress it's going to cause us so where do people reach you what kind of work are you doing at the moment tell us a little bit about that so I am tools for having the talks on Facebook and Instagram I also have a website which is tools for having the talks.co.za um, where you can buy the workshops I will be publishing the workbooks for separate purchase at some point in the future because not everyone can come to the workshops but want access to the information. Um, I run the workshops throughout the year. So the age groups that I'm currently got is three to six, seven to 10 and 11 to 14. So if you are a parent, caregiver or even a teacher of those age groups, those workshops are probably very beneficial to you. I've got one starting in two weeks time, but on the Instagram and Facebook and the website are all the different dates and just reach out and chat. I've got a Facebook page called body positive parenting with Casey Blake, which people can join um, and become part of a community that is hopefully destigmatizing and desexualizing bodies. And just to check, you're doing all of those workshops virtually now. So if you're, yes. in, if you're in uh Kakamas, like a colleague of ours, you can still access those workshops. Absolutely. Um, if the time zones suit you, you can access them from anywhere in the world. That's awesome, Casey. Well, thank you for sharing your expertise with me and my listeners today. And I know that a lot of people are going to find this conversation really invaluable. Thank you for having me. This episode was sponsored by Desire. Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code FORAFRIEND. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you would rate and review it. Do you have a question you'd like to ask for a friend? Reach out to me via my website or Instagram and I'll be sure to include it in an upcoming episode.